Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast, where we explore ideas around mental health, equality and social justice. I'm Thea Joshi and on the podcast I chat to people who are working towards equality in mental health. So I recently caught up with Juliet Snell, one of our associates, about an evaluation we've been doing of a BBC Children in Need programme, which is focused on supporting children's emotional well-being. So we talked about rediscovering the role of fun, creativity and self-expression in promoting children's well-being. Something which can, you know, seem very obvious, but is often missing from a deficit approach to children's mental health care. And Juliet highlighted how important relationships with parents and trusted adults are as ends in themselves for children's well-being. We also talked about how A Million and Me has supported and equipped adults to step into that vital role. Hope you enjoy. So welcome, Juliet, to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. Um, And so you're one of Centre for Mental Health's associates. um, And I really wanted to get you on the podcast today uh, to talk specifically about our new report, which is an evaluation of BBC Children in Needs, A Million and Me programme. And I wondered if you could just start by talking us through the sort of purpose behind the programme. Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, BBC Children in Need set out in about three Three years ago, maybe they started the thinking four years ago to set up a £10 million programme, so a large programme, an investment for them into understanding how children who might be starting to struggle with their mental health could be helped. And I think they were driven to that by their growing recognition that a high proportion of the children that they already support within the Children in Need um, profile is are children who are starting to struggle with mental ill health. Um, Their understanding from research that a high proportion of adults with mental health problems um, have begun to struggle before the age of 14. And really their recognition that mental health services in the more traditional sense were really struggling to meet demand. So they were needing um, more and more resource to try and meet the needs that that are out there. So they were thinking about how to um, reach out to more children uh, earlier on in order to prevent mental health problems. So yeah, that was the programme in a nutshell. So the focus was on eight to 13 year olds, primarily because they wanted to be reaching young people before they started to kind of show signs of mental ill health. Is that right? Yes, I think so. And I think BBC Children in Need also does have a focus on childhood. It's kind of obvious from the title. Um, And so they have a particular expertise and and footprint across children's projects around the UK, one of the UK's largest funders. Um, So they're interested in childhood anyway. And I think it was an opportunity to really think about mental well-being in childhood where quite often the eye is drawn to adolescents. When we talk about children, young people's mental health, we do tend to think about adolescents, not always, of course, but um, so I think it was an opportunity where BBC Children knew they, they already had that focus on children. And I think it's maybe worth also mentioning um, alongside prevention, the fact that during those years, eight to 13, you see children go through a number of really important transitions. So uh, the, the most obvious one being their transition from primary school to secondary school and with all that we know about what happens during that transition, particularly for some children who are already facing adversity, but also children's emerging identity during that period of time that they they sort of begin at 
age eight with an identity that's quite merged with their family and that mm -hmm. they leave age 13 from that age range with their own emerging identity and a more focus on peers their their passions and their interests and their personalities will have developed and evolved during that time so it's a really exciting age group to have um, a mental well-being focus on and I think that's where that came from that's so helpful to understand because I think previous research that we've done has kind of highlighted that on average children and young people go about 10 years between sort of their first symptoms and and kind of getting any sort of help for their mental health so I guess my understanding of the program is that it's trying to reach people before we get to that stage to build up their understanding of of mental health and how they can um, support themselves and maintain that. Yeah I think I think the idea of prevention and early intervention so if we see children um, quite a simplistic way of looking at it but see all children on the spectrum of mental health and I know that's an idea we talk about quite often at the centre um, I think there was definitely a focus on those children who had not yet reached that stage where they might be needing to access clinical support from the NHS for example but who are nevertheless having experiences and feelings that might put them at risk of, of becoming unwell at some point in the future. Mm. It's really worrying to know that children and, and that statistic you mentioned is despite many of those families and children seeking help. So it's not that it's about wanting help or even yeah. children and families who are, who are looking for help often have a sort of unacceptable delay. It's one of the things we talk about the most, isn't it, when we're talking about children, young people's mental health is the wait and the delay mm. that, that children have before they get help. So it's just really interesting that a million and me thought about that group of children in particular. And also I think thought about rather than a new and a different support for them what could be done to enhance the existing support around those children so I know we'll come to talk about it shortly but really just to think about what's already there around those children um, what's there in their communities in their families in their spaces their schools their youth services and so on so what can we do to enhance that space and make it uh, really more able to to support their mental well-being and protect them future ill health that's so interesting because um it seems that instead of going for an approach where we sort of parachute in an intervention that is going to help a child instead it's as, as you say embedding and building up the um structures and the systems that are already in place to support them and kind of as you say enhancing strengthening those um it's a more organic approach maybe exactly and and of course the 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 voluntary and community sector, who were the main delivery partners, um, were well, the only delivery partners really of, of the A Million and Me project, um, is already part of that organic system. So it, these were mm -hmm. um, organisations that already knew the children that were, were being reached in most cases, were already um, understanding and learning about their mental well-being. And A Million and Me just gave them time and space to think about um, scaling up and sustaining that kind of support so doing more or thinking about how to do it differently um, so I think it that that sort of organic um, development didn't apply just to the children's systems around them but also applied to the voluntary sector um, that already has those relationships in, in many cases and that know-how that understanding that engagement that knowledge of those children and their families yeah 
so could you talk me through the role of the centre in this and then um, maybe about a few of the projects that were involved in delivering support to the young people? Sure. I mean, I think we've already spoken a bit about um, organic um, and evolving ideas. And I think actually our role was organic and evolving, which was lovely to work alongside a programme as a learning partner um, and to be free to let that role develop and change over time and to respond to what was happening in the programme. It's quite an experimental programme in some ways. Uh, we were there to observe and record for sure, but we also had the opportunity to feed in learning all the way through. And that part of the project actually became more and more prominent, I would say, as, as evaluators, we took more and more of an active role of noticing interesting new things happening or noticing gaps or noticing challenges and also putting different elements of the program together to help them learn together. So for example, one partner might be struggling with something uh, that they were trying to achieve and another partner might have some interesting learning or ideas about how to do that, um, which I think is one of the real strengths of, of the program. In terms of you asked about the kinds of projects, um, so I think having worked on a number of different programs like this um, for the centre in the past, the thing that really stands out for me three years on is the diversity of the projects in A Million and Me. So they ranged from projects that worked right across the UK, reaching out to many thousands of children through, for example, text-based support, so crisis text line, um, or website or app-based support that, that reached out across the UK, to projects that were really about learning um, and research, so projects that had a focus on, for example, piloting different ways of commissioning or delivering services, um, or projects that thought about particular groups of children, so children who were facing a particular kind of adversity or children who were occupying a different space, a particular space. And the, the programme was designed that way. So rather than just waiting to see what kind of proposals come in, which is quite common in philanthropic programmes, what Amelian and me did was it that they almost designed an ecosystem. I'm quite into biology, so it helps me to think <laughs> about ecosystems. But it's like an ecosystem. And they thought about the niches in that ecosystem. And they thought, OK, we're going to need somebody who is thinking about this aspect and somebody's going to be thinking about that aspect. And they recruited into those spaces um, mm. in quite a proactive way. The end result is a, a genuine system that has been mindfully and purposely put together. Uh, thank you. Uh, it seems it seems so distinctive as a model in quite a few ways. And when you were talking about commissioners and uh, with especially with voluntary sector services, they can be quite um, reactive. So it's quite kind of as you said, um, you know, you see you see who applies and you kind of give where where it seems relevant. Um, Whereas this is kind of going, let's design an entire system. And also this idea of the centre's role as, as sharing learning between, between partners rather than being seen as um, competitors or each doing their own thing, just creating and facilitating this space to actually learn and get alongside one another and partner as part of the same system. Um, that seems, yeah, distinctive and, and a really interesting approach. Yeah. And what that's meant is that we as learning partner could actually even influence the intake of new projects. So we could even think about, well, perhaps something that's missing in this ecosystem we've envisaged is uh, so a really good example is we, we noticed that we hadn't done as much in the programme as maybe we had hoped around 
people who work with children already. So uh, we call them trusted adults within the programme. So we noticed that gap in year one and we're saying, well, you know, perhaps we need to focus attention on this group of um, people and how they fit into this scaffolding around children. And that then informed the appointment of a partner to, to really focus on that. Or we might notice particular groups of children whose needs weren't particularly well met. So, for example, we had to focus on children in rural, coastal and island communities. And we really did some work to think about those children. We did some research to think about those children in year two and some focus on, on that uh, set of experiences is coming into the programme quite late on. The word that quite often springs to mind is an iterative approach. Interestingly, that's an approach that you see in, in the tech sector and Amelia and me had lots of tech partners within it. There's quite a lot of technology or technology based okay, yeah. products. And you mentioned there about children whose needs perhaps weren't being met by the initial iteration of the project. Um, and I'm aware that kind of at BBC Children in Need and within a million and me, you know, inequalities facing children is, is a big part of that. And so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how um, the projects themselves and the programme more widely sought to kind of address those inequalities. Yeah, um, I, th I think. It was very explicit and clear that um, A Million and Me was for all children. Um, so it was to be there for children across the spectrum of mental health, including children who are well and who just want to learn or have fun or feel better um, and across to children who are really struggling. But from that starting point of, of A Million and Me being for everybody, I think course we at Centre for Mental Health and anyone who works in children's mental health understands that um, we are facing really large health inequality in childhood uh, around mental health. Um, the the programme thought about this in different ways in different projects so there were some targeted projects and some projects that were just for particular groups of children who we would expect to have uh, a higher risk of poor mental health. So for example, there was a project that supported newly arrived um, asylum seekers. There is also a project that just thought about particular groups of children. So it's a project that was only for girls and just to try and understand their own experiences, not just of, of um, being female, but also the experiences of intersectionality, the experience of being female and potentially facing other uh, worries or concerns in their lives. Mm. Um, other projects were there for all children, but purposely marketed in order to reach particular groups of children. For example, through, uh, I mentioned a lot of the projects were digital, so they might use particular social media targeting okay. strategies yeah. to, to try and reach particular groups of children. So children from communities facing racism, for example. Um, and then there were some projects that didn't start with a focus on inequality at all. But because we were there alongside as learning partners, we started to notice that some children were attracted to certain kinds of projects. Yeah. I suppose the most notable of those was that the digital projects we noticed were being reached by more disabled children, so children who reported that they had a disability, and by more trans non-binary children and by girls. So we noticed that these projects were seeing that higher reach quite remarkably higher in some cases. And we were then able to offer support as a whole programme 
to those projects. Um, we had a partner who had a particular interest in LGBTQ plus identity. So that partner was able to come alongside their colleague organisation and offer a bit of advice and support. We had quite a lot of input around working around neurodiversity. Um, so I think we had that range of approaches from very universal to quite targeted. And that just really enhanced our learning about inequality, I think. Um, and I, I think we leave the programme with a bit more of a sophisticated view of inequality in childhood um, and how children experience it. Amazing. Thank you so much for shedding a little more light on that. So you've been evaluating Million and Me for the last three years. And obviously, you know, now as the, as the programme draws to a close, I mean, what would you say are the key elements you've identified to well-being support and approaches um, for this kind of eight to 13 year old group? It's been really nice actually in this final year, as you say, three years alongside the programme. Um, it's been really nice to reflect back on some of the original thinking as the programme began. And uh, Professor Miranda Wolpert um, wrote some important work at the beginning of the programme just to advise and support uh, BBC Children Need as they were trying to scope and frame what they wanted to do. And she drew on some thinking from an American academic called Anna Maston, and, and she uses a phrase called everyday magic. And in, in a lot of ways, it's only now at the end of the programme that we've reflected as a, as a learning team on the evaluations of all the individual elements of the programme and of the programme as a whole. And that idea has really resonated. That idea that actually the things that were successful in, in the programme and in the projects were everyday simple things that are already around children. Yeah. And not like you say, not new things that need to be parachuted in, they're already mm. there. And that they have power, you know, that Anna Master uses a phrase called powerful systems. And I think that's really interesting. So one of those is fun and happiness. The idea, you know, and, and the children's advisory group is a group of children from Scotland who supported the, the programme's learning. They drew on that straight away. They highlighted the importance in, in their priorities of children having fun and ch children being helped to be happy. And it seems obvious, but I think the mental health system forgets yeah. it, doesn't it? <laughs> Actually, it's just important to do fun things it, it does seem obvious from a children from a child's perspective and I guess just us as humans but I was really struck by that in the report because I think you know mental health support is seen as you know supporting people when they're feeling bad and it's kind of like a therapeutic space and you don't really necessarily automatically think fun with that but it's so it's actually yeah it, it's maybe obvious but kind of also feels a bit revolutionary I agree. It's quite deficit based, isn't it? Our, our yes. language around mental health. Yes. Like you yeah. say, it's about what you lack or yeah. what are the problems. And I think the children helped us focus on um, that idea of happiness and positivity um, and access to play. And the importance of play was another really strong feature of yeah. the, the, the project. I think quite often projects think about play so, for example, positive activities within youth settings as a hook, a way of bringing children in. But actually what the children helped us understand mm. was it's an end in itself. It's the feelings of well-being that come from doing happy, joyful things 
are a protective factor in themselves and are there to support children's mental well-being. I think this is wider than just mental health, but there's almost a thing around fun and doing fun things as being frivolous. And I think especially when you think about kind of being funded to deliver support, it almost sometimes feels like it has to be yeah, quite dour and quite deficit based because there is a problem and we are solving it rather than just kind of recognizing, as you say, that that fun and play can be in uh, an end in itself for improving well-being. It's such an yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's a new way of thinking about it, I think. It is. Well, a new and an old way, interestingly, of course, yeah. because it's, as it, you know, fun is as, as old as the human race but it, it you know we almost needed to rediscover it as an element of mental health um and to yeah. recognize how important it is to children particularly you know to this younger age group if you think about that and i guess related to that is a kind of second theme for me which is about creativity and self-expression and a lot of the projects identified that as a really important vehicle for children we came quite interested in the concept of emotional literacy particularly in the second year as we started to get the first sort of evaluation findings coming in and we had a real focus on what the tools were for self-expression and creativity so words and movement and um, all sorts of things that help children recognize feelings um, be able to to know they're having feelings being able to name them and being able to express and share them and learn about them and that again became a really important building block for the projects and something that the projects realized was a space to really focus attention and energy on to get that right to get language right to get the process of learning about emotions and feelings right so that uh, so that they could maximize children's opportunity to get those tools yeah. place um, at the right stage in their lives. Um, I guess another important theme maybe emerged a little bit later uh, for us in the learning but just as important was around relationships and we started to understand how important relationships were to children. Um, again how the relationship was an end in itself, um, how children were seeking and wanting to form relationships with each other um, with the adults in their lives, with their parents and carers, um, and even actually with digital products. So we, we started to understand that children were using um, characters in apps, for example, as a, as a vehicle to build a relationship, to have an, an important confidential relationship just for themselves. Wow. So we started to really understand that we should value and validate those relationships that children already have and think about how we equip them. And probably the most prominent relationships that we recognised there was the parent-carer relationship and to think about what we can do to resource that relationship um, and help parents and carers um, feel confident in um, addressing mental well-being and addressing emotions with their children. They were very motivated already. We found that out from some of the research we did, that parents are already very motivated to think about their children's emotional worlds, but often lacked confidence. Um, and the yeah. same we then found it was true of trusted adults, such as sports coaches, you mm. know, people who worked in 
in youth settings and so on. The level of motivation is there, but there's something about this deficit model that we were talking about earlier yeah. that frightens people that they think that, well, you need a special kind of qualification to be able yeah. to talk about emotional well-being or mental health. But actually, what we really needed to do was just to help those adults step into that role and feel confident and comfortable to do that. Um, and so with A Million and Me offers this huge range of resources and ideas. One of the things we're really encouraging BBC Children in Need to do as the programme draws to a close is to make sure those resources are easily and widely shared. There's some excellent um, things there that so many people could benefit from. It's going to have a, a legacy for the programme um, and also reach that ambition of scaling up. We talked early on about the sheer numbers of children that it would be really important to reach and the digital resources in particular do have the capacity to do that to reach out to so many people so really important kind of call to actions the program closes to make best use of those resources yeah and I think it's such an interesting point about again as we said earlier this idea of um, enhancing and building up parents and, and carers and trusted adults in that role because I think you're right there's a lot of fear and uncertainty I think when we talk about children's mental health and and we know obviously that parents can feel very helpless when their child is experiencing mental ill health um, but ag again can also feel sort of helpless as to know how how to kind of have those conversations early on and how to sort of embed the ideas around well-being within within conversations so it sounds like this program is really sort of equipping them to feel to have the confidence as you say to sort of take that forward in their in their roles. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the projects that worked particularly or, or targeted uh, work with parents particularly noted, for example, that um, outcomes were better if parents and children did things together. So it's a really simple idea actually to just share that news with parents that really simple things like looking at an app or doing an activity or um, having a conversation or reading a story with a child, that in itself improves their mental well-being, particularly wow. if you do that with a little bit of guidance and support from yeah. programmes such as A Million and Me. That in itself is just a really powerful message to parents that validates their role and gives them a, a nudge to feel confident and feel enabled to open those conversations. And we really recognize the power of those conversations and those relationships through the yeah. program. I think it, it's such an obvious point, but it needs making that of course, children are different and families are different and communities are different and they will be interested or attracted or um, have, have needs of different kinds of help at different points in their emotional lives. If yeah. you like. And the ability to give agency to children by offering them flexible, easy access to all sorts of different ideas is a real feature of A Million Me. So they have access to apps that they can have on their phone um, at any time of day or night, regardless of whether they have um, internet access at that point, yeah, because we've yeah. some apps developed. Uh, they can access things independently of their parents, which I think is important for some children. Um, or they also have access to um, support that comes via an adult, you know, that their parent or carer can support with. And so that, of course, helps us around the, the point we were speaking to earlier around inequalities, that diversity makes it easier for diverse children to, to get access to help. But I think it's just helpful for all children to have as much 
choice and range of help as possible because we'll, we'll have more chance of reaching more children that way. It's something we've talked about a lot, isn't it, about um, yeah, diverse and different ways of reaching out to children. Um, obviously, the more traditional model of CAMS, etc., has an obvious role, but kind of going beyond just saying we need more of CAMS and actually recognising what else is in the system and what else is maybe um, further further back in terms of the preventative angle um, that can really, as you say, scaffold um, and strengthen young people before they potentially reach that crisis stage. And I'll link in the show notes to a couple of other pieces of work we've done in the last couple of months, um, one evaluating work of Project Future and one um, that you worked on, in fact, about uh, the Centre 33 project in Cambridgeshire, which really speak to that need for more flexible, easy access to mental health and well-being support um, outside potentially those more traditional models with more um, eligibility criteria. And yeah, so it's something we're sort of definitely thinking about at the moment. I would very much support that need for diversity and flexibility anyway, because I think it's important that people have choice and easy access to things. But it's, we have a particular call to action now, don't we? We have rising concerns. It, those of us who work around children and young people's mental health are really quite worried about some of the um, higher rates of mental distress that we're seeing in childhood and younger. You know, So we're very particularly concerned about this age group, the kind of primary age children. Um, and we have to do things at scale. Uh, we can't rely on clinical support only in order to support the mental health of our children. So we absolutely have to think differently. It's an imperative uh, to, to transform the system in order to reach out, to, sadly, to far more children, young people who are starting to feel distressed. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's both on the individual level, but also as a as a society, we need to think about uh, mental health differently. Of course, and, and this is obviously in the context of um, a, a kind of, you know, cost of living crisis, rising inflation, et cetera. Um, we're likely to see higher rates of poverty. We know there already is a rise in child poverty um, and, and we know that there's a massive link between poverty and mental ill health. So the need for this could not be more obvious, I think, at the moment. Absolutely agree. And services that are designed for children who are already unwell of course need extensive investment and support but everything we can do that prevents a child ever having to need such help yeah. is important on an individual level yeah. kind of human rights level a right to be happy and a right to be well but also at, as a society we need to um, do everything we can to protect those services for those children young people who really really need them 100 <laughs> percent um thank you so much Juliet. what i'd love to know as we end is is sort of what would you say are the key calls to action as a result of our work on this so as you know i've worked in children and young people's mental health for quite a number of years and i'm probably as guilty as the next person of, of focusing attention particularly on adolescents and young people but I think what I take away from A Million and Me is the importance of investing in younger children and really thinking about younger children as having distinct and different needs to young people, that they're, they're at a particular point in their lives where they need the kinds of support we've been describing, you know, access to fun, access to happiness, 
access to self-expression, language and learning around their emotional world. So uh, that that needs investment um, and that investment will, of course, pay off in the way that we were just talking about. Um, so, you know, investing earlier and younger um, and also investing in prevention um, that that seems like such an obvious thing to do but the mental health system if you think about it in the sort of um, public policy sense tends to not think about prevention nearly as much as it does about treatment and yeah. actually it's just really really important call to action to think about prevention as a, a target and an area that we should be focusing on and probably attached to that is our learning in a million and me drives me to think about diversity within programs, to, to think about this ecosystem idea of being, rather than having lots and lots of the same kind of project and the same kind of approach to be able to design diverse offers for children and their families. Um, and that in itself will help to challenge inequality amongst all the other things we talk about, for example, poverty, um, prevention and um, trauma-informed practice. And I think finally, um, what I hope comes from this, and of course, BBC Children in Need is well-placed to do this going forward, is to communicate these really important ideas. They're quite simple ideas, but they're quite important because what we learned is if you just help adults understand and appreciate their role, they're well motivated to step into it, but they do need support to have that confidence that we talked about. And I think this programme is really well placed to share that idea. That's so helpful, Julia. Um, thank you so much. And I will obviously make sure we put links to the report and all the other different bits in the show notes. Um, but just to finish off, we like to ask guests on the podcast um, to just tell us briefly about how you manage your own uh, well-being and mental health. Uh, so thanks. Um, you gave me a bit of warning that you're going to ask me this question. So I had a little thing. <laughs> you're welcome. And it's just, a, yeah, thanks. So, and then it occurred to me that here I am doing the exact opposite of the three things that I'm going to mention. Because um, <laughs> you, uh, I hope listeners can't see me, but um, here I am sat in a room by myself in an office looking at a screen. And I think the things that support my well-being are the exact opposite of those things, which is essentially being in nature. So I'm blessed with having dogs that need walking so just getting out looking at the sky and trees and water at least once a day um being with friends and family so here I am in a room by myself though it is lovely <laughs> to see your face but um yeah. being with friends and family and um chimes I guess with a million and me investing in those relationships and letting those relationships work to support my mental health and um having the courage to talk about mental health in those relationships, I think is really important. Probably I learned yeah. more and more as I get older. <laughs> and then finally, um, I guess being kind to myself. Um, and maybe that is particularly around rest. Um, I think the last few years, we've all worked so much harder than yeah. we used to. I for one have. Yes. There's something about this new world isn't it that is quite brutal in terms of that and I think it's taught a lot of us that we need to think about um kindness to ourselves we're generally quite good at being kind to each other I don't know how good we are at being kind to ourselves so that's no. that's something I'm still working on I wouldn't say I've got that cracked yet 
I think we will be keeping on working on that for the rest of our lives. But it's a very, it's Agreed. a very good principle. Um, Juliet, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for all of your work on this and um, uh, yeah, for, for telling us more about it today. It's been a real joy to hear more. Thanks very much. It's been lovely to talk to you about it. And I really hope it's something that listeners can think about uh, sharing with others as, as a million and me draws to a close. Hope you enjoyed this episode. To join our fight for equality in mental health, you can donate at www.centerformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time.